what's happening today that I'm seeing is uh, a lot of people are talking about it is, is this return back to more of like a gritty authenticity on social media and TikTok is really championing that. Uh, and, and to me, what that means is, is that you can build a marketing strategy just on this like approach of guerrilla marketing, this scrappy, gritty, like DIY marketing, which is amazing for startup nonprofits because that's all they can afford anyway. People want more realness. They want more messy, everyday things uh, that are more regular, more consistent. As I mentioned, there are founders building entire companies just running their own TikToks. my friends. Welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanna LaFleur, and this is the first episode of 2023. Now, we might want to call this like season nine, part two, or season 10, but actually in 2023, we're going to be dropping the season numbers and we're going to start counting on episodes because, man, we've done a lot of episodes and we want to kind of switch how we're counting things around here. We're still going to be taking some pauses in between, but we've got a fresh run of 14 more episodes we want to bring to you now in this first run of 2023. We are so excited for the guests coming up. Uh, Stay tuned on social media to see what that is. But our first guest is Victoria Harrison or Vic Harrison. She's the co-founder of Charity Water. And she did that along with her husband, Scott Harrison. This is a charity known for branding. When we talk to clients around here, we're made digital, like who do you admire? Who do you want to be like in your charity, your nonprofit work. Charity Water is high on the list of people and places that they mention and admire. So it's so fun to be able to talk to the person who helped create that brand, built that story and that strategy. So thanks so much to Compassion Canada for lifting children out of poverty in Jesus name. And of course, being a partner, an amazing partner on this podcast, longstanding. It's a real privilege to do it with them and to continue to see the work that we together can do around the world. So more on them later. And also Scripture Untangled. This is a podcast by the Canadian Bible Society. And if you're wrestling with Scripture, wrestling with your faith, and you want to know more about how to untangle it for yourself, Scripture Untangled's amazing opportunity to check out, listen, or watch those episodes. More on that later as well. So who is Victoria Harrison? Well, she mainly goes by Vic and she's, as we said, the co-creator of Charity Water. She's a marketing and branding nerd. She's a nonprofit coach. She's wife to Scott Harrison and a passionate believer in helping good people do great things. So she leads Mission Critical now, and it's all about helping nonprofits do better communication, branding, and marketing strategy, which is why we're sort of kindred spirits on this whole journey together. Our work in some ways is crossing paths. And so it's really fun. And I hope you get to enjoy and learn and lean in and maybe take some notes from this conversation with Vic Harrison. Vic Harrison, welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm so pumped to have you on the podcast. I feel like uh, we have like minds, so I'm pumped to have this conversation. Hey, Joanna, this is so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, before we go too much farther into things, um, you know, I'll, I'll have already introduced you in the intro, but, you know, who are you? Give us some context on maybe where you're at today, because people might be a little bit familiar with the backstory, but where are you at today? Sure. Uh, so today I am trying to get as many nonprofits on board with um, 
our vision, which we started Charity Water with a long time ago, which is, uh, so our mission was always to bring clean water to every person on the planet, but our vision was to reinvent charity for our generation. Uh, When my husband, Scott, and I, I'll go backwards just for a little bit, started uh, our nonprofit Charity Water 16 years ago. Uh, we were, uh, young and we just didn't see many charities that embodied our spirit of fun and, uh, usefulness. And we didn't know many of our friends. We were living in New York city at the time. Didn't know many of our friends who loved giving to charities. And we wanted to change that. So we built the charity that we wanted, that we wished had existed. Um, that was all about, you know, having a little bit of fun and bringing this light and hope and positivity into the nonprofit space. And uh, when I left Charity Water after working and building it for 10 years, uh, I saw the actual landscape of the nonprofit sector as a whole and realized that I kind of grown up in the charity world in our little charity water bubble where we loved marketing and we geeked out on storytelling and copywriting and all of this marketing stuff. I came from a uh, marketing background and Scott came from kind of a promoter background. And I realized when I left Charity Water, oh my goodness, so many nonprofits do not come from that background whatsoever. And uh, we were able to grow because we loved marketing and storytelling. And I wanted that to be a reality for a lot more nonprofits today. Um. Okay. I mean, there's so much to unpack in all that you just said. So um, maybe let's talk about that. Um, I think some people would be familiar with Scott's side of the story. He talks about his own journey to a more meaningful life uh, and starting Charity Water. Um, But what's your side of the story? Like, where did your lives intersect? How did you, how did you meet? Like, were you married and then you started this thing together or how, how did, um, how did kind of you get involved with this work in the first place? Sure. Uh, so I came to America when I was nine years old from communist Russia. My family wanted to, um, they just hated living in a, in an oppressive, uh, regime. Mm -hmm. And my parents were artists themselves and brought me to New York City uh, because they struggled with language and the customs. They never made it as artists in in the U.S. and mm. um, and but but they raised me in this creative environment and said, "Hey, you know, we we really want you to. We know you you're talented and and I've always I always loved drawing and painting." Uh, with my mom since I was a little kid. And they said, you know, we really want you not to, st- not to be a starving artist like us. Right. So there's this new field called computer art. You should go to college for computer art, which was back in the early, the late nineties. Of course, um, now I, I think it's uh, just called everything. Doing everything on a computer is just normal. Yeah. <laughs> but back then it was like computer art. So I went to the school of visual arts um, and majored in graphic design. Okay. Uh, because I thought, okay, this is a way I could combine art with actually something that could make money, um, uh, a career. 
And uh, about three years into college, I was paying for my own tuition, living in New York City, having a great time. Uh, I got an internship that ended up being becoming a job. So I never finished college. I started working at this small boutique design agency that at first was like, unbelievable. I, can't, I I just thought, wow, I've made it. Here I am. All my friends are still in senior year of college doing these boring thesis projects. I'm working in a digital, in a, in a graphic design agency. Walking, I, We got to walk the halls of the biggest agencies in New York City at the time. We were kind of hired out by the biggest, uh, the biggest guys in New York in marketing, Ogilvy and Mather, Saatchi and Saatchi, all these yeah. um all these iconic agencies. And so for about a year, it was awesome. I got to sit in brainstorms with amazing creative directors and work on ad campaigns for Coca-Cola and Honda and American Express. Uh, and about a year into that work, the shiny new feeling, the, um, the glamour of it all started to wear off. And I noticed things like, all right, so there's a whole, you know, group of 20 creative directors sitting around the table in this gorgeous corner office brainstorming how to sell cheap cosmetics to, uh, you know, women 20 to 25. Meanwhile, none of them believe in this brand. None of them believe in, you know, this product they're marketing. Okay, we're marketing Coke to young teenagers, you know, we're creating a new campaign. Nobody here is drinking Coke around this table. Like we were marketing things we ourselves didn't believe in. Mm -hmm. And I just, yeah, started to kind of pull back the curtain and say, is this, is this all my life is really going to be about? Uh, and the last straw that broke the camel's back was I was working on a makeup commercial. Uh, and I was a junior, junior designer, like bottom of the ranks. So I got stuck with the the dirtiest jobs in design. I was like cutting out this bubble every day for a month uh, <laughs> on this commer on this commercial spot that we were doing. And every day I would come into work, and my producers were would you know would say, okay, well the client has requested that this bubble be moved twenty pixels to the right, and that the shading on the right side could be a little less blue. I would come in the next day, and it was like another version of that. And day after day, I started to it all kind of unraveled quickly and. I, and I realized this is this is really going to be the rest of my life if I stay in this mm. career. I'm going to be moving this bubble around for a month. And, and those clients are paying exorbitant money per hour to oh, your agency. I never agency. even met the clients. Yeah. You know, it, there were six <laughs> layers of producers between the client and me. Mm. So yes, the amount of the sheer just amount of money uh, that was that was pouring into these commercials. Uh, also blew my mind. And so I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew that I wanted to bring more meaning into my life. I'd also gone through a bad breakup, felt crappy about myself as a person. So I was like, how do I find an outlet for myself yeah. to do something for others, to feel like a good person again? And I started volunteering. I just signed up for a few volunteer opportunities around New York City, uh, soup kitchen, homeless shelter, the kind of things that most people first think of, and went on a Sunday morning to, to volunteer at the soup kitchen. Had a great experience, um, but was still thinking there's got to be something more. I want to get more involved. I don't want to just be a volunteer. I want to, I want to know, um, what it would feel like to run something, to help build something. And right around this time, as God had 
always ordained and planned, I believe. I was talking to a next door neighbor of mine on the corner of my street in the East Village and telling him about all of this, where I'd been in my career, what I was thinking. I was looking for volunteer opportunities. And he said, I have this guy. Uh, his name is Scott. I, I've known him from the club days. He and I used to go clubbing together. And two years ago, he get, he sold everything he owned and moved to the poorest country in the world at the time, Liberia. And now he's back. He's back in New York. And he wants to build this nonprofit to help people get clean water. And I was 23. And I legitimately thought to myself, what? People don't have clean water around the world? That's crazy. I had <laughs> right. You no just idea. didn't know. Yeah. And so you, you, you meet Scott through a friend and then kind of maybe you say the rest is history or like it just was a natural work partnership first. It was. So, so I, I, the first time I met him, I went to uh, this outdoor exhibition that he had uh, organized where um, Charity Water, it was really kind of the, the official public launch of Charity Water. And he convinced all, all of the New York City's public parks department to give him one day at 10 or 12 of the biggest New York City public parks to put on this outdoor show where he was showing pictures of dirty water in uh, the places he'd visited. And he had some creative ideas, which I loved. He had taken water from the local New York sources like Central Park Pond and Hudson River, put them in these clear plexi tanks and then said, okay, your taps turned off tomorrow. This is the kind of water you'd be drinking, New Yorkers. And I just immediately saw the potential. I thought this guy has a marketing brain and he is doing something out of the box and creative with almost no resources. It was just him and another uh, co-worker at the time. He had started Charity Water four weeks before that day when I met him at this uh, at, at Union Square Park in New York. Anyway, so I volunteer for the whole day. He doesn't talk to me the whole day because he's busy networking and he's like the big, the big man, you know, he's got like 20 volunteers and I'm this shy little 23 year old. So I come up to him at the very end of the day and I say, Hey, I've been here all day. I love what you're doing. Um, if you need any help in the future, I would love to help in any way I can. And he says, what do you do? I said, I'm a graphic designer. He goes, I'm looking for one of those <laughs> and in true, like entrepreneurial style, like wasting no time. And he takes my number and says, I'll call you. So uh, I also thought he was cute. And the next, the next day he calls me the next day. I think I thought he's not going to call me. He calls me the next day and says, Hey, can you come by? I really want to show you what I want to build. And I want to, you know, tell you all about what I'm thinking of doing with charity water. So I come to this weird address in Soho thinking I'm going to the charity water office because the exhibition looked pretty legit and uh, professional. I end up in his apartment thinking this is a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> I right. just like second floor walk up dude loft. He was living with three or four guys. He was sleeping on the closet floor and he opens his laptop. Like I would end up seeing him do hundreds of times. Now, uh, he opens his laptop with me. So we sit on the couch for two hours and he shows me a thousand pictures from his, uh, work on the mercy ships, fixing the most horrendous facial deformities and, uh, how he saw the sickness that he saw on the mercy ship that, that he believed it was 
largely caused by the bad water people were drinking in all of these villages that they were coming from. And yeah, he said, I want to, I want to solve the water crisis in our lifetime. So he was very convincing, just incredibly inspiring. And I, and I started coming by every day after my, uh, my, my design job, my, my marketing job, I would leave the office at five 30, walk all the way downtown to Soho, go to his apartment, meet him and Lainey would sit around his kitchen table, literally building charity water for six months out of his apartment. I mean, how, how cool is this is like an origin story. I didn't know this. I mean, I'm so glad. Thanks for sharing this side of the story Be, and in these humble beginnings. And I hope people listening are paying attention to that. Like it could start there, but that there was this natural inclination you had this sort of like-mindedness with Scott around marketing, branding, how to tell the story. Now, I mean, I think it kind of goes uh, without saying that like a lot of charities, that's not what they're known for. (laughs) Uh, But I hear over and over it with the clients I work with in church context, in charity context, nonprofit, that like charity water for them is like the goal. It's like the dream. It's like, you know, I hear all the time, oh, I was seeing what charity water did and that inspired me in some way. And so from starting in this like after work in an apartment, uh, on, on a laptop to what's been accomplished. Like it is really amazing. So maybe, um, and the next question I want to go to from here is this, I, is this idea that you posted about, because it got a huge amount of sort of engagement when I saw the reel for it. Is this like the, it's, so I'm going to the other side of it. So you're starting in the apartment, but just, you know, with like no dollars, but there was this question you said, if, if some donor came and said, um, I'm going to give you a million dollar donation for marketing. Um, like what would you, and you have to spend it all in marketing. What would you do? So if you had the other set, you had money, but you, you had to be strategic about where to spend it because some people listening are going to be starting from nothing, but others are, are in a place where they have a budget and they're trying to figure out how best to spend it. So someone comes, they say, I'm going to give you a million dollars, but it has to be spent in marketing. You can't spend it in any other part of your charity work. How would you allocate that dollar? Yeah, I love that question. It's a challenging question. And that's why I built my course, uh, which I'm still uh, currently in the process of uh, launching. It launches in 12 days. It's called Critical Mass Modern Marketing for the Rising Nonprofit. Uh, And, and it is, it's a course to, to, to teach startup nonprofits how to start from scratch like we did. But I think it also at the same time addresses this question uh, as well, because I don't think I would do anything differently if I had a million dollars. So the answer to the question is I would build a small lean team. Say you do have, you know, I I would start doing that if I had zero dollars one by one person by person and hire and flesh out a small creative team of like-minded inspired people who probably don't even come from nonprofit. Honestly, I would build that team in house. And as a leader, I would learn how to lead that team well. And I would build, um, a grassroots marketing strategy because, you know, you could probably take that million dollars and you can invest it in, you know, you could pay 600 of 600 K of that for a Super Bowl commercial, but then, okay, you have this little, right. this big spike. And then what you've got nothing after that. Yeah. So, uh, as, as 
yeah, of course, building a grassroots movement takes way more work and more time, but it is something that will last you a lifetime. It will transform your nonprofit. So that small team, you know, that's the team that would then be activated to think about, hey, what is our one-year marketing strategy look like? What does our three-year marketing strategy look like? How do we think about acquiring uh, donors? How do we think about... And in the course, I call this the three-part marketing engine, captivate, convert, and keep. How do you, there, there's a specific strategy for how you captivate people. How do you get that? Um, the, the, right now, it's three, se- three seconds is all you have on social media to get someone's, atten- to, to keep someone's attention before they are swiping up, right? So there's a whole world of uh, strategy and, and, and mindset of understanding how does that kind of a consumer consume, uh, content and how can we, uh, work within that, that those constraints, which I think breeds so much creativity. If you've got to get somebody in the first three seconds, you're going to just, you're going to get super creative and it's very, a very interesting challenge. But so captivating that first time I call it the stranger, the person who's never heard of your charity. That's, that's one of the three components uh, that your team will constantly be working on. Then how do you convert to that person? Right. You also need to convert them quickly and right away. And, uh, there's an entire psychology of, you know, conversion copywriting. And what do you say? How do you challenge people's limiting beliefs about why, you know, why charities like you shouldn't be trusted? How do you, uh, yeah, challenge their assumptions. How do you make them feel comfortable about giving? Uh, so that's another component. And then the third one is then how do you keep them for life? So I would have that team build a strategy around the captivate, convert and keep marketing engine, which then that fuels that, that grows your broad base, your mass audience. And the broad base, I always say, feeds the major fundraising strategy. I know a lot of nonprofits say, well, why am I going to put all of this work into building a wider audience when I can just go ask one donor for $100,000 or a million dollars? And my answer is always, at Charity Water, I know that about half of our major donors come from, they start at like giving $100 online, giving $500 online. And... Uh, and so you, you're building at the same time as you're building your broad base, you're building the pipeline for your major donor strategy. Hope you're enjoying the conversation with Vic Harrison. And as I said, off the top, I want to tell you about another podcast because the Bible can feel overwhelming, confusing, and even hard to believe. But Scripture Untangled is a new podcast by the Canadian Bible Society. And it's bringing you interviews with culture leaders, leaders in ministry, Bible thinkers, academics, to help you be inspired to dive into the Bible and understand it. You can listen for free and subscribe to Scripture Untangled wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can visit scriptureuntangled.ca for more information. And hey, you might even hear a familiar voice that is my own interviewing on some of the episodes. So I do hope you can go check that out, Scripture Untangled. And so what I'm hearing you say here, I mean, you're saying so many things, but what I hope, again, people are hearing is like, there is a skill set and expertise that you have to hire for, like investing in the right people is key to building um, the strategy, but because, and whether those people are insiders or those are uh, consultants or those are contractors or those are like 
buy the thing, like as we're talking about why I wanted to have you on the podcast, this critical mass course that you're offering, like buy the course someone else has done. Like there are experts out there. You can hire their brains, whether that's for the year, the day, you know, the, the course that you're offering, because you, you need to think about your charity with all the same kinds of departmental expertise as a business. Um, can we talk about that? Um, I think that one of the things that you talk about a lot and that, that I love that you're, you're thinking like is that uh, a lot of charities are like poorly run businesses. <laughs> um, and what yeah, have you I seen in that? I know your angst in that too. Like, like um, they're just, they don't know how to run a business. And so can we talk yeah. about, I'd love to know what you've seen or where, um, kind of where your passion lies in that area. Totally. I think that if you're starting a, a, a consumer packaged goods startup these days, you take marketing seriously from the first moment, right? It's mm -hmm. just a given that if you're starting a, a lollipop brand or a protein powder brand, that marketing has just got to be built in from the very first day. And if you're running a charity, you're like, oh, you know, I'll hire my marketing person six years in. I'll hire my first designer 10 years in, which is what I'm seeing a lot. Uh, and I really, truly believe that that is just a like industry wide limiting belief or this, this kind of stigma that we've created as a nonprofit space, because, um, I think people who start charities think that, that they have to be serious and they have to be uh, you know, the humanitarian mindset is like, and I talked about this recently, when I joined Charity Water, I kind of fell, fell victim to this too. I was like, I can't, I have to get rid of all of my nice dresses and all of my nice clothes. And we're not allowed to have any more fun because, because I'm joining a charity. I have to go buy <laughs> these really boring black sneakers. I literally went or out like to cargo, the store. Or like cargo pants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Safari like oversized hat. cargo <laughs> pants. Because I just, I need to show people that I just came back from a, a third world country. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> but there is this stereotype and it's a stereotype for a reason. And I came to my senses pretty quickly and realized, wait, 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 no, no, we're not, that's not the kind of nonprofit we're building. We're building a nonprofit that is going to value world-class excellence and top of the line, you know, st uh, storytelling. We're going to get a lot of stuff donated. Don't get me wrong. We're not going to spend, because that's the other side of the coin, right? That's the other question I get often is when I go into a nonprofit that doesn't think like, like we thought at Charity Water, the first assumption is, oh, we can't, it's going to cost us millions of dollars to learn marketing, to market right. with these high standards, to match the quality of marketing that we see in the for-profit space. But it's not. The truth is, especially with social media platforms like TikTok these days, what's what's actually most valued is, the, is what's between your two ears, is your creative brain. And uh, you don't really need to have a studio set up, you know, w with a hundred thousand dollars of camera equipment anymore to create really good, engaging content. Uh, so, so that's that's kind of the biggest uh, challenge we have in the nonprofit space is that we know we've seen through the last fifty years of business uh, of. of let's say capitalism of, of people building businesses that, that marketing is essential. Marketing is one of the first functions you build out. And yet we as a nonprofit space still 
uh, fight and push against that. And it's still this mystery to us. We don't understand it. And we don't know how to, how to engage with it. And and what do you think it is? Because I, if it is, do you think that that charities feel like, um, as you said, like about their sort of a stuffiness, or a, you uh, do do you feel like in order to talk about the needs of the poor, we have to look poor? Is that the mindset, or uh, is it like it's not humble to be good at marketing? You know, what, what do you mm-hmm. think that comes from as a mindset? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a social contagion type of thing. You know, you, like when, when new people, when new founders start charities, they look at what other charities like them in their space look like and sound like and what their right, websites okay. look like. And they just say, okay, if I want, and, and I call this, you know, marketing for other charities as opposed to your donors. And so they think, well, I, you know, I have to use all of this industry jargon and uh, what I call nonprofit word salad. Like, you know, we are piloting and pioneering innovative solutions to solve global homelessness. I'm like, what is that? Mean? <laughs> I don't know what you're saying. Word salad nonprofit word salad or what did you, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Which is, which is all of this nonprofit jargon, this terminology that other nonprofits might say, Oh, okay. That makes you sound more legit. But everyday regular people who are your actual donors will look at that and be like, I have no idea what you do. I'm not going to give you any money. So I do right. think there is, uh, we need to, we need to really radically look outside of the nonprofit space for inspiration, for ideas, for how to run businesses. And that's what I love about, you know, um, even, even in the church and also in our there are bright lights. There are people who talk about, uh, Craig Groeschel is one that comes to mind who he talks about how to run a business for him. It happens to be the business of a church. He's a leader of thousands mm-hmm. of people, yeah. you know, but this is how you hire somebody. This is how you fire somebody. This is like, this is just basic business stuff that you need to know. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and so we need to look at, um, I believe as an, as just nonprofits in general, outside of the, the nonprofit space. That's what we did from the very beginning. Scott just recently did an interview on a podcast and he, and they said, Hey, who do you admire and who do you look up to in the nonprofit space? What are like nonprofit trends for 2023? And his answer, I was laughing. It was so funny. He goes, I have no freaking idea. I don't look at the nonprofit space at all. <laughs> right. I have <laughs> no idea. <laughs> Interesting. I don't look at nonprofit trends. I don't really have many people I look look up to or copy in the nonprofit space. I don't know. I'm looking at the founder of Spotify and what he's doing. I'm hmm. looking at, you know, what Twitter is doing. I'm looking at Airbnb. So, yeah. Well, you have this quote, um, um, that's, I've seen you write this quote from Nicholas Kristoff of the New York Times. Toothpaste is peddled with more sophistication than the world's most life-saving causes. Yeah. I mean, that feels like sobering, convicting, um, confronting to our ideas. Like the idea that we would spend, you know, a company would spend on an agency or whatever. And again, it's not all about the money, but just in sense of what mattered to that toothpaste company was millions of dollars invested into selling that toothpaste. And toothpaste is a good product. We all need it. And yet there are more like these more critical life-saving causes um, for the world. Uh, And we're shy about talking about them or or learning how to talk about them, we sort of like, well, it's good thing. So people should just give to it. Like people should just know. Yeah. I think that's actually a really big part of the, the thinking is 
two-sided. A, one thing I hear all the time, nonprofit leaders and founders believe or fear that their donors will not approve of them hiring a graphic designer, hiring a videographer to shoot video so that they can have lots of content, right? Oh, that our donors are, and they just make this assumption outright without ever asking their donors. But and so I say, okay, either you're right. And in that case, you need different donors. If your donors don't believe that you should spend, hmm. you know, a, a salary's worth of dollars to hire a, a creative person who's going to get your name out there, who's going to help you get discovered, then you need to get some different donors. And look, you can always like the way, the way Scott hired me was he went to one donor, a board member who believed she was the one pushing him to hire me. She said, you need, you need your first hire to be a designer. And when he found wow. me and I was first a volunteer, but eventually I kind of said, okay, I need a job. Like you need to pay me. Uh, and I need to quit my job so I can do this full time. He just went to this board member and she um, was able to give him the sum of my entire annual salary, which at the time was $48,000 a year. So I was pretty affordable. Right, not very much at that time. No, yeah. uh, but, uh, you know, you could get that from three donors. You could go to three donors mm -hmm. you have that get marketing who probably have their own companies and they understand why this is important and say, hey, I really want to hire a designer. Can you, can I, can I, can you give me $30,000? Can you give me 30 and can you give me 30 so I can have 90,000 to hire a designer? It's so simple. And yeah. you just need to believe that that is what is important for your nonprofit and donors will get on board. Donors just, we always say this at Charity Water, like donors just want to give where the money is most needed. And if you have a convincing case for why a designer or a video person or a copywriter or a remote storyteller out in the field is what's most needed. If you can build that case, um, I, I don't see how a donor would say no. So that's, that's the number. That's just one of the two things. Um, first, they believe that donors won't get on board with it. And the second one is, uh, yeah, I think that they believe, um, that they believe that, that, that they'll be perceived as, not taking their cause seriously, which, which I believe is, is, bad. is very backwards. Yeah. Like, well, we're not an ad agency selling toothpaste. So why are yeah. we doing that? Yeah. I can see, I can see that rhetoric or at least the fear that the people you're accountable to with the money might feel that way. Um, and on the other side of it, a, a lot of organizations I see struggle to find and keep great creative talent. And there's lots of pieces to that. Um, but sometimes it, you know, sometimes it's about they can't afford the great people or, you know, they feel that they can't afford great people or, um, but sometimes it almost is like a self-fulfilling, like a cyclical problem where like, if the culture isn't compelling to get a great person in, then the great person isn't going to come. Or if the great person comes, they're not going to stay too long because the culture is not a great culture. Like, I mean, it's, um, it's stuck in the past or it's a bad mindset. It's thinking small. And they're like, you hired me to do the big thing. And I'm seeing yeah. you actually don't want to do it. And so then the person doesn't stay long. So then the culture doesn't change. You know, it seems like it's a cycle of it's hard to change the culture without the right people, but finding the right people is a challenge. So, I mean, you've led teams, you've been in this world. It's, uh, we don't, we don't have endless amounts of money. Um, do you have any advice for people looking for, 
you know, like obviously you were a volunteer before you came on staff in, in a paid way. Um, any insights or advice for people who are, they're trying to find great people. They don't have a lot of money to work with, or how do you keep a great person and not frustrate them? You know, I, I mean, anyways, around the staffing side of things, do you have any advice? Absolutely. The whole entire first chapter of my course focuses on the mindset of the founder uh, as a marketing first thinker. So I believe the reason Charity Water, I mean, I don't believe this is a fact. The reason Charity Water has always been good at marketing is because Scott valued it. And he uh, saw he saw good talent and he just like scooped people up in an instant, right? He, even still, he sees somebody that's talented and that's creative. He wants you to, he wants to draw you into our organization because he believes. So A, I, I believe that you as the founder have to cultivate your own inner creative founder mindset. What does that mean? Um, you don't have to, you know, learn Adobe After Effects and Adobe Illustrator and Photoshop unless, I mean, if you're a team of one right now, Honestly, I think you should be using Canva. You should be learning how to get on TikTok and Instagram. And I know a few actually amazing examples of founders of for-profit companies that built their entire company in the last year and a half on TikTok by posting wow. themselves. The founders themselves, go check out um, Suckers with a Z. Suckers is a lollipop candy uh, company. And the founder himself is on TikTok every day making the most creative content. And he's built an army of followers, like 600,000 people follow him. Wow. He's built his entire business. Okay. So anyway, you don't have to, if you're, if you're a founder who is uh, a little bit of a ways into your nonprofit and you've got a bunch of employees and teams that you, you have to run, uh, just, I, I still do believe it's so important to cultivate a culture that is welcoming to creatives, that is welcoming to people who, um, who are marketing minded. And that means, so that just means you've got to, um, celebrate those people and value them. And if you're going to hire a really talented designer, and then you're going to have them come in and they're going to give you some out of the box ideas that you're going to shut them all down. Um, you know, yeah. think about it. You wouldn't do that if you hired a CFO. You wouldn't do that if you hired a programs person. The problem with creative, uh, the creative field is everybody has an opinion. Everybody has an opinion on how a sentence should be worded, right? So the copywriter who's supposed to be the professional who's thinking on the cutting edge of copywriting, conversion copywriting, for example, you know, they bring this interesting head email headline to you and you're like, nope, nope, I've been writing all my life. Like this isn't going to work. Too but, risky. Yeah. yeah, but think about it. You know, this person is a professional. You hired them. Let them do their job and also celebrate them. I always said at Charity Water, if, you know, if 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 people make mistakes, if people fail in the name of innovation, we call that failure a success. We consider that failure a success. Let people fail. If they're failing because they're lazy or negligent, that's one thing. If your creatives are trying new things and innovating and sometimes they fail, go all out and celebrate those failures to show people, hey, we value you you taking risks here at our organization. So one thing Scott did early on, always has done with me, with all of the creatives that we've had at Charity Water, is he like pays special attention to people. Uh, when I would, uh, when he would ask me to build a pitch deck or give him a um, 
a presentation for like a possible new campaign. And I would work really hard all night to put this thing together and give it to him the next day or in a week or whenever. Um, most founders, even when I worked in the marketing world would be like, Oh, this is so nice. Great. Thanks. Put it on their desk. And then you don't hear from them. I would see him in the next meeting with the next donor being like opening his laptop and be like, look at this thing Vic just built. Here it is. Here's what we're thinking about. It's not even real yet. I don't even know if it's going to happen, but you know, here's what it, and I would walk by his glass office, you know, and peek in and see him presenting my work and being proud of my work. Right. Celebrating you and celebrating the team. I was working on a dime. I had a really crappy salary. I didn't care because I was celebrated. I was respected. My ideas were heard and I was championed. Pausing the conversation with Vic because we're talking about charity and here's what you need to know. Right now, the world is facing unprecedented global food crises. The numbers are really staggering. 820 million people, that's nearly 10% of the world's population have been affected by hunger in this past year. That's 46 million more people than the year before, just to put that in context. It's really hard to know what to do with those numbers and to carry this kind of news in our hearts and our minds all the time. But here is the good news. Compassion's local church partners are on the front lines and they're responding. There are simple and tangible ways that we can partner to answer hunger with hope. And so I want you to go to the Gifts of Compassion gift guide. And it includes gifts specifically targeted at meeting the critical needs brought on by this food crisis. There are ways we can directly help respond to the food crisis. What would it be like if you didn't know where you were going to eat today, tomorrow, this week, or more? What if it was your kids and you didn't know how you were going to feed them today, tomorrow? or this week. You can give at compassion.ca slash shop. I love, I love what you're saying about all that. Um, this idea of like hiring, trusting people to do their jobs, celebrating them, letting them take some risks. Um, can we talk about, you know, when you're talking about copywriting a few minutes ago, what that leads me to be curious about is this idea of complex problems and copywriting. Um, I see some charities think that in order to build trust, and it's not that it's untrue, in order to build trust, you have to explain your expertise on the problem. But I think some people can get so jumbled in jargon or technical things or whether it's like well wells and digging. That's a complex thing to actually do and engineer and health and issues around poverty, health. Like these are not simple issues. So what's your perspective? Not that you're necessarily a copywriter, but as a lead on marketing and comms, uh, how, how to not talk down, like these people aren't dumb. So you don't, you're not trying to talk stupid to them, but like, how do you, how do you talk about complex problems, uh, in a way that isn't, um, getting, getting lost in the words, you know, getting lost in the weeds of the complexity. How do you, how do you think about that? Yeah. Look, I think that simplicity is, uh, is elegant and it is, it, it, it exudes confidence. Uh, but simplicity is the hardest thing to do. To simplify what you do is deceptively hard. Um, and it takes real work to, to sum up all of your nonprofits activities in a headline on your homepage. Uh, it is, it is this very specific art and that's why people 
it takes people years to get really good at writing copy, at writing simple words that speak, um, a, a, that, that are that are simple in in kind of like everyday language for for non for non nonprofit people to understand for your donors to understand uh, and I do yeah I think we we again as a nonprofit space we fall into this false belief that we have to sound educated and smart and like we know what we're doing but that's not what builds trust in fact you know I would say. That's uh, that that simplicity is more trust building than over explaining yourself. I mean, we know this from think about, you know, at a party, if somebody is going on and on for 25 minutes explaining what they do, uh, you start to <laughs> too, wonder too much why they need to be <laughs> talking so much. Right. And if someone says, uh, yeah, I started a nonprofit helping people get clean water. That's it. You know, that's like, oh, OK, right. there's you're mm-hmm. leaving. There's some mystery. There's. Uh, so yes, I do. I think, I think clarity, um, you know, clarity, if you can't get people to understand the problem you're solving, you're never going to get them to buy into your solution. And these days people just do not have time to read a lot. Um, and you need to be super clear if you want people to get on board with what you're doing. Well, it reminds me of that. I love this Mark Twain quote where he writes in a letter, you know, sorry, I wrote so much. If I had more time, I would have used less words. Yeah. That getting to the that. simplicity takes a long time. Yes. Um, what you're saying is like, you have to give your team space and time. It may take actually a few years to learn how to talk about yourself in a more simple way. Yes. And I have a great micro example of that. When we were about a year into Charity Water... Uh, we understood the importance of clarifying our message early on. Um, and we had a mission statement, but everybody said it a little differently. Some people added a few of their own words to it and, you know, we kind of weren't super aligned and it, and, and it was a little longer than it is now. We got ourselves in a room with two consultants and we spent two entire days, 16 hours to just come up with a simple sentence, Charity Water is a nonprofit bringing clean, safe drinking water to people in developing countries. That took us 16 hours to write. And we debated and picked apart every word doing clean and safe. Can we just go with clean? No, we have to have these, like we we talked about every word for, but after that, we've never rewrote, we have not had to rewrite our mission statement for the last 15 years. So it's worth the time. I I love what you're saying because I think especially for senior leaders, if they're not from that background, like what are those creatives doing all day? Like how did it take them three days to come up with this little, you know, the Nike swoosh? It's so simple, but it's worth billions of dollars. <laughs> that simple Nike swoosh, this, this idea of the simplicity takes a lot of time and expertise. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, for the, for the last few minutes we have, I'd love to hear your insight. You, you talked about TikTok. I don't know if you want to lean more, if you want to talk a little bit about TikTok, because it's a strategy that, um, and now my dog wants to get involved in the conversation. She's barking in the background here, but, um, I, I'm, because it's an ever evolving skill set. you know, digital is changing techniques for marketing every six months. It feels like something you might've had as a strategy may need to, to, to adjust. Um, what are you excited about? 
in on in platforms or um you know maybe it's another or another channel you're following you know a person you've mentioned um what are some things you're excited about um in 2023 as you see like every year things keep evolving and changing um and then maybe the second of that is um yeah the idea of like how you're continuing to learn because things are constantly changing so what are you excited about and how are you learning about it yeah um well I'm excited because I think that marketing trends and all of these things, people think that, that's a scary idea that, oh my gosh, I could invest in something marketing wise. And then in six months, it's not relevant anymore because it's changing. But I want to put anyone who is listening at ease that it's really not that, uh, it's not that volatile. Marketing is kind of like a, it's a cycle and ideas come back around just like any trend on the planet, right? In, in, in interior design, in how people dress and clothing, things come back that have been, uh, that we just kind of continue to recycle ideas that um, have already been um, in our in our atmosphere before. So what's happening today that I'm seeing is, uh, a lot of people are talking about it, is, is this return back to more of like a gritty authenticity on social media and TikTok is really championing that. Uh, and, and to me, what that means is, is that you can build a marketing strategy just on this like approach of guerrilla marketing, this scrappy, gritty, like DIY marketing, which is amazing for startup nonprofits because that's all they can afford anyway. And I think when Instagram first, you know, started ha- happening in what was it? 2007, eight, nine, 10, the first types of accounts that got lots of followers. And this set the trend for many years after that were accounts that posted um, unrealistically beautiful imagery that wasn't representative of our everyday life. Right. And, and, that's what the human eye was drawn to. And that's all that you started to see on Instagram. And so it ushered in this era of unrealistic expectations and everybody followed that trend for a little while. And now that's starting to lose its, um, starting to lose its power because people want more realness. They want more messy everyday things, uh, that are more regular, more consistent. And so, um, we, we can start to put that ap- approach to bed. We can start putting the approach of like, we have to only put out this polished, perfectly thought out content into the world. That's, that's 2020, 2021. That's in the past. Right. As we think going forward, the good news is that you can have five, six of your employees who you trust, you know, they can have access to your TikTok or Instagram account and they can, you can start to post more real time, real life situations and build so much more trust that way with your donors, with your constituents, with your broad base. Um, so again, I think, as I mentioned, there are founders building entire companies just running their own TikToks. And so what that means is like even more, you know, even more now than ever, you don't need to, you don't necessarily need to only produce polished, expensive content. You don't always need to hire a studio and a director of photography and expensive cameras. Um, although sometimes that's still great for specific inflection points in the year. So I teach this campaign approach in the course, uh, 
as a strategy, as, as a way to think about your entire year's worth of content, you have these peaks and valleys. I call it the 10 pole campaign strategy where you invest all of, you invest a lot of time into, um, two, three campaigns throughout the year. And you ramp up to them with hundreds of little pieces of content that culminate in this like big reveal, this big launch that, and you're kind of, it's like a tornado sweeping everything up. Everybody starts to perk up and pay attention because you're like kind of pushing this one narrative for two, three months. And it gives you an excuse. It gives people an excuse to rally around your cause. And then you celebrate that and you go on to the next thing. So Sometimes it's great to have really polished content for things like that, but all around that, all the debris around that, if you want to call it that, is just like everyday TikToks, everyday Instagram stories. I love that. And, uh, you know, just even at dinner the other night, talking to a friend who's a YouTube manager for some big account, big, big, uh, YouTubers. And he says like that thing you said about the founder doing their own TikTok, he says in his experience, um, get it. You need to know how to edit your own videos because if you hire that out too soon, uh, people can tell that you're not really the heart behind it. It's like the style is wrong and all this kind of stuff. And the same that TikTok is so easy and it's accessible. It doesn't have to be super polished. You can learn how to edit, you know, within the hour kind of a thing and just start getting the content out. Um, Vic, if people want to find you, they want to find this course that you've done, you, you're launching critical mass, uh, you know, where, where do you want to send them on the internet today? Sure. So my, my, my website for all my work is missioncritical.co and it's right on the homepage there. Uh, so missioncritical.co and you can follow me at Vic, V-I-K Harrison on Instagram and TikTok. I just started a TikTok, so I am brand new. If you want to follow me and see me fail and flop and do weird things and have no followers in the beginning, like it's so I'm good. just driving right in and uh, follow along. Vic Harrison, Instagram and TikTok. Yeah. I love that. And I love that you're saying like, be humble enough to start fresh, try it out. You're going to fail along the way and you're going to do it in front of people, but like everybody can access that. It's awesome. Hey Vic, thanks so much. Um, I want to ask you a hundred more questions, but for the sake of time, we'll wrap here. And I'm just really grateful for your work, your passion, um, the way you're impacting whether directly or indirectly, how often I hear about your work and your influence in the world of nonprofit and charity. And I'm just really grateful for what you've done and the impact you've made. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Joanna. Thanks so much. Vic Harrison, thank you so much. What a fun conversation and a real privilege to get into her brain about how she thinks about these things as a market leader. I hope you've enjoyed it and maybe want to check out her course. Next up on the podcast, Zach Windall is back. He is the founder of the Bible Study and the Brand Sunday. So he's going to be talking about how to be stay optimistic in really troubling times that we're in. And also we're talking about how he sold his company and how he gets TikTok content out every single day. We're going to go practical with him about how he actually gets that done. So if that's something you're trying to do yourself, thinking about doing for your brand or your own brand, uh, we'd love for you to lean into the next episode. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors who are making us 
able to bring this podcast to you, to Compassion Canada, who are lifting children from poverty in Jesus' name, and the new podcast, Scripture Untangled from the Canadian Bible Society. As always, find us on our YouTube channel. We would love for you to check out our tutorials, a back catalog of podcasts. We have all kinds of content there for you. We would love for you to hit subscribe on there. We're trying to build that up in 2023 uh, with more valuable content. And hey, we'll see you on the internet or we'll see you back here next week for more Word Made Digital.